Okay, we are continuing our series entitled Having a Heart Like God with a Life Like Mine. And um, we're talking about the life of King David. And uh, we've got just a few more weeks. Next week, we actually will study David's sin and the event in his life that almost destroyed his life. And then our last study, two weeks from now, we'll talk about David's confession and how God took that sin and put David's life back together. One of the things that God allowed David to do as a result of that was to have part in building of the temple. And that's primarily what we're going to look at today. The title of our lesson today is David's passion for God's work. When God said that David was a man after his own heart, God was saying that it is possible for us as normal people to have a heart that is bent towards God, that is like God. It doesn't mean that we're like God. It just means that our heart loves the things that God loves, desires the things that God desires, wants to do what God wants us to do. That, in a nutshell, is what that means. So we've been studying the life of David, trying to look at different areas of our life that will practically manifest that. That, that show us what that looks like. Well, this is one of those areas. To have a heart like God means that we have a passion for God's work. Um, if, if God's involved in it, and if this is something God's trying to accomplish, and I have a heart like God, then I ought to want the same thing to be accomplished. I ought to be passionate about the same thing. Now, you're going to see in just a minute, it doesn't necessarily mean that we all do the same thing, it's just we're passionate in general about the work. As a result of that, we just want to be involved. I don't know how many of you have ever gone through the Bible study series Experiencing God, which was written by Dr. Henry Blackaby. Uh, great study. Uh, if you've never done it, I would encourage you to get the study books and maybe go through it sometime. But one of the things that Dr. Blackaby teaches in the series Experiencing God is that the way you and I get involved in God's work, is that we find a place where God is already working and just jump on board. We don't have to create something. Just find a place where God is already doing something and jump on board. Get involved there. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today as we look at David's passion for God's work. Let's start with 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 1. The Bible says, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great, talking about building the temple, because this palatial structure is not for man, but the Lord God. With all my resources... I have provided for the temple of my God gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above 
everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? <coughs> Excuse me. Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work, gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. <coughs> Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gishonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. This was an exciting time for the children of Israel. For the longest time, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, had not dwelt in a permanent dwelling place. It was in a tent. It had been moved around. But there was no permanent dwelling place. Finally, the children of Israel are going to have the opportunity to build a permanent structure where they could put the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God could dwell for good. The problem was, anytime something big, a project or anything like that, happens, that requires several people to be involved. The challenge is to get the people who need to be involved in the work to be as passionate about the work as the person God laid the work on. David, several chapters earlier, back in 2 Samuel, after he had gotten victory over all of his enemies, he was dwelling in a palace, said this, Here I am living in this beautiful palace, but the Ark of the Covenant of God doesn't have any place to sit. God has no place to dwell. It's not right, David said, for me to live in this beautiful home and God's house to be non-existent. He said, I want to build a house for God to live in. So God gave David that passion. That's where it started. Now what we're going to do today, we're going to look at five things that I believe Help describe for us the kind of passion someone with a heart like God ought to have when it comes to God's work. <coughs> this past week, <coughs> I was meeting with someone, um, actually relative to our ministry, and we were talking about the church. And we were talking about the philosophy and the view of today's society relative to the church. Now, at Riverland Hills, it's hard for us to imagine this because we are a part of a church that has a couple thousand people. We come to a class every week that has anywhere from 30 to 50 or 60 people at a time, and, and, and we, don't, we don't really understand what it's like to go to a church that only has 15 people attending and only two people in a Sunday school class because every week we come and this is what we have. Some of you may come from churches where your home was that were like that, and you're going to have a better idea of what I'm talking about. However, if you talk to ten people today 
in the city of Irmo, just ten random people, and ask them, do you go to church? Unless you get lucky, I would venture to say that six to eight of those ten people would probably say either no or sometimes. We have all kinds of things, even in the name of ministry, that are rising up. Uh, and that people will say, well, I don't go to church, but I have my own worship time at home. Or, I don't go to church, but I go to a small group during the week. In talking to this gentleman this past week, one of the things we began to discuss, which actually kind of woke me up to this whole idea, is, do you know that the church, the, the institution of the church, is probably the most important institution to the heart of God. There are three institutions ordained by God. The home, government, and the church. By institution, I mean it's a structured, organized entity with a specific purpose by God. In other words, it's organized. It has people involved. It has leadership all laid out and designed. And there is a specific purpose for which God created it. But there's only three. The home, the church, and the government. You know what the Bible says about the church? The Bible says that Jesus Christ died for the church. He gave His life for the church. The church is the bride of Christ. When we get to heaven, the bride talked about in the book of the Revelation is the church, the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, when the church was formed, Peter preached, 3,000 people accepted Christ, got baptized, and the Bible says they then joined themselves to the apostles. And they continued in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Throughout the New Testament, the church is talked about and instructed and addressed. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches in Asia Minor who were specifically addressed in letters by John. There's the book of Galatians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. All of these, along with these seven churches in Revelation... All of these are local gatherings of believers called churches. The church at Jerusalem was the mother church from which all the others sprung. The church at Antioch was the group of believers that commissioned Paul on his first missionary journey. The church is important. But in our society today, the church has become a social club that we attend if we have time. And it's usually way down on the priority list. I have a feeling when we get to heaven, God's not going to quite look at the church that way. Isn't it funny how today, churches have to beg their members to actually attend. I've read several times, and I'm reading again for, I think, the fourth time, a book that was written by Tom Rainer and his son Sam, entitled The Essential Church. And basically in which 
he talks about the fact that between the ages of 18 and 22 is when we lose the most people out of our churches. Therefore, if, if between the ages of 18 and 22 we lose the most people out of our churches, why do they leave? Well, he gives ten reasons. After interviewing hundreds of people, there were ten main reasons why people left. The crux of the matter was they left because church no longer was essential to their life, they believed. By the way, if that's the truth, then our ministry to young people in their 20s and 30s becomes the time period in all of their lives where we go get them back. It's where we reclaim them. It's where church becomes essential again. So our ministry becomes even that much more important. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because a person who has a heart like God will probably have a pretty strong passion for God's church and everything about it. David had a passion for God's house, for God's work. Now, what does that mean to us? What does that look like? Well, first of all, before we look at these five things, let me just tell you this. It doesn't look like the stereotype that most people think of as church. It was interesting because um, one of our class members and I, we were talking just before class started, and we were talking about how church so many times is so surface. It's so religious. Well, one of the things about our class is, number one, we're not going to be very religious in that sense, or formal, or professional. And the main reason is, I'm the teacher, and I ain't none of them things. I'm just a plain old country boy who loves God, loves the Bible, and is just going to tell you like it is. Okay, I'm not smart enough to be too religious. The second reason is, at our age, where we are in our life, we're not interested in some formal religion. I need answers. i got to live life. I want to live it the way God wants me to live it, but I need to know the straight-up talk about how to do that. What does God say about how I handle this in my life or how I handle that? It's interesting we're doing, and, and by the way, let me remind you, write down your questions that you want us to answer for our summer study and make sure you put them in the bucket that's on the table. By the way, when you do that, write singles class on the top so, because I'm doing it for both classes, I need to make sure I answer the question in the right class. Because both classes won't have the same questions. But I've already started getting some of them. Some of the questions we're getting are, number one, is it okay to drink alcohol? Why are we so hard on homosexuals? Well, let me tell you something. If you go to some place that's just religious, you don't talk about those things. Because those are real life issues that people want to know the answer to. What does God say? What is the answer? And don't give me some surface answer. I want to know what God says. How do I handle that? That's real Christianity. That's what the church is all about. Now, thank the Lord, we have a church that does that. Our pastor is not necessarily someone who tiptoes around the tulips. I mean, he tells you what the Bible says. And he's not afraid to address the real-life issues that we face, which is why we grow. So when we talk about church, we're not talking about the world's idea of some 
formal religion that you just go through the motions on Sunday morning and then leave and forget about it till next Sunday morning. We're talking about a vital place of resource, a place where we learn to love God, a place where we learn to love each other, and a place where we get involved in ministry so we help our community and we help other people. That's a real living body. That's what church is. So don't get confused by what the world gives as a picture of church. And there's a lot of churches, unfortunately, that model that picture. Okay, We're not that. And that's not what we're talking about here. Okay, So to be passionate about God's work, what does that mean? Well, let's look at what it meant to David. All right. First of all, look at his personal passion. I want you to take your Bible turn to Psalm 69. Interesting passage of Scripture. Psalm 69, starting in verse number 6. And here's David writing. Look at what he says. Psalm 69, verse 6. May those who hope in you, talking to God, not be disgraced because of me. David says, God, I don't want you to be disgraced in the eyes of other people because of me. I don't personally want to do anything to hurt your testimony. When people see me, I want them to see what you're really like. O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. Verse 8. I'm a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Look at verse 9. David says, my zeal, my passion for your house and your work consumes me. It eats me up. It dominates my thinking. So much so, I don't want to do anything that would cause reproach or hurt to it. David basically is saying his passion for God and what God is trying to do in the lives of people motivates and controls and directs everything he does. Now, you're going to notice David, number one, was not a preacher. He wasn't a priest. Number two, he didn't even build the temple. He only had the plans. Remember God said, because you're a warrior, you're not going to build it. Your son will, but I'll give you the plans for it. David was the fundraiser. He raised all the materials to build it. So just because the Bible teaches we ought to be passionate about God's work, it doesn't mean that the only people that are this passionate about it are preachers. It's all of us. There are several other verses that talk about David's passion. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1-3, through 3, he talks about wanting to build God this temple. We talked about that already. Then in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, if you'll go back over there, in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 1 and 2, this is where David gathers everybody together and he starts to give instructions as to how to build the temple. And then he goes on through the rest of verse 20, uh, chapter 28 and he's telling Solomon what to do and how to do it and so forth. All right. So, first of all, there's a personal passion. Let me ask you a question. What is your passion or level of passion? Maybe it would be a better way to put it. What is your level of passion when it comes to God's work and God's house? 
How do you feel about that? If I were to ask you, what are you most passionate about in your life? What would you say? And by the way, it's going to be different for everybody. Okay? And, and, and I'm not, everybody's not going to say, I'm most passionate about going to church. That's not what I'm talking about. So leave that out of it. Okay? What you are most passionate about identifies what and why and how God made you. And I hope that whatever you spend your life doing is centered around that passion. Because it's a miserable life when we live our life doing every day something we hate. And God never intended for us to do that. So what are you most passionate about? Okay. Now once you identify that, now put that in the context of God's work. How does your passion for God's work govern how you do that thing you're most passionate about? That's what we're talking about. It doesn't mean we all got to be preachers. It doesn't mean we all got to be full-time missionaries. What it means is whatever God has made me to be, whatever God has given me a passion for, I want to make sure I do it in such a way that God is honored because the underlying passion that governs everything I do is my passion for God. Does that make sense? Do you understand that? That's what David's talking about. David wasn't a preacher. David didn't build it. But he was passionate about it. And that governed what he did do. Okay? Don't let God be an afterthought in our life. Don't let God be something that we only think about on Sunday morning for about two hours. And then the moment we leave, He is nowhere to be found in our thoughts. That's what we're trying to avoid. Okay? So first of all, David's personal passion. Number two, look at First Chronicles 29 and verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because the palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. Number two is the place of priority God's work had in David's life. Notice what David said. This work is really great. Why? Because it's something we're doing for God, not for us. Anything we do, we do it for the Lord and not for men. Isn't that what Paul told the churches? When you work, work as if you're working for God, not for man. In whatever our job is, our ultimate boss is God. That's what David's talking about. And if God is my ultimate boss, and whatever I'm doing, if I believe that's where God put me, then that makes the task I'm doing great. Because I'm doing it for God. So second of all, the place of priority David had in his life for God's work. Number three, his personal commitment to it. I want you to notice verse number two. David said, with all my resources I've provided for the temple of my God. Now let's stop. What David's talking about is all of his business influence. David used the skills and the talents and by the way, the position that he had as king of Israel to gather resources to build this temple. You ever heard somebody say in business, it's not what you know, it's who you know? Don't be confused. It is true. In sales, we used to tell our salespeople, all things being equal, people buy from people. 
and all things not being equal, people still buy from people. Relationships are the key to everything. They're the key to your job. They're the key to your marriage. They're the key to your relationship with your parents and living life the way you ought to. Relationships are the key to everything. And the relationship you and I have with our Savior is the ultimate relationship that governs all of it. Well, that's what David is saying. I used my influence, my relationships to make this happen. Do you know God still wants us to do that today? Do you ever wonder, why does God make all of us different and put us all in different places? Most all of us have different jobs and responsibilities. Well, how does that work in God's scheme of things? God didn't put you where you are by accident. There's a reason why you're there. And He's going to use whatever you're there for. It may be the people you run across. It may be the ideas that you learn. It could be the, the customers that you have and what they are capable of doing that one day God uses for His own work. And He's got you there preparing you for that. So, when David says, first of all, I used all of my resources to provide for this. He's talking about his vocation. But I want you to notice a second thing that describes his personal commitment. Look down at verse 3. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, using all my position, now notice what he says. I now give my personal treasures of gold. You know what David was saying? David was saying, not only am I asking others to give to this project, but I believe in the project, so I'm giving personally to the project as well. Jesus did not say this for no reason. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, this is not a message on tithing. Let me know if you do that or not. And I can pretty much tell you about where your passion is for God's work. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When I first took over managing a group of people in our company, we're a publicly traded company, one of the things I asked my sales group in our first sales meeting was, how many of you own at least one share of stock in our company? I was shocked at the percentage of people that did not. You know what that means? You don't even believe in who you're working for. Now, I didn't say how many of you own thousands of shares of stock. How many of you own hundreds? I said, how many of you own any? You know what that is? That's an investment in the company you work for. You know what that says? I believe in the company enough to invest personally in its success. It's not just a place for me to get a paycheck. That's commitment. That's passion. That's personal involvement. Well, let me ask you this. Relative to that, what does it look like when we look at our commitment to God and His work? I'm not asking, do you give millions of dollars? I'm not even asking necessarily, do you give money? Do we give anything? You know, money is not the only thing needed to do God's work. Time is needed. Talents are needed. And we all got those. And by the way, those are just as valuable as money is. 
Do you realize that? Do you really know how valuable your time is? It's worth a lot. And way do you get more involved in things and you start getting pulled in a hundred different directions, people wanting your time, it becomes that much more valuable. So, David said, besides using my resources, I have given of my own personal possessions. That's how much I am committed to God's work. Then, number four, he also promoted it to the people. Look at chapter 29 and verse 5. David says, For the gold work and the silver work, for all the work to be done by the craftsmen, now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Do you ever remember going to church where the pastor preached and at the end of the service, he asked for commitments? It may be commit your life to the Lord, commit your life to go to the mission field, Commit your life to getting victory over to sin. It, it wasn't, and, and, and we got to be careful. I don't want you to think every time God asks for something, He's asking for money. Because He don't need our money. He owns it all anyway. But just any kind of commitment. Do you remember? Man, I remember lots of times. Well, they would ask for some kind of commitment, and I'd get mad. Now, always asking for something around here. You know what? As long as I ran from God, and wouldn't commit anything, I always got mad because God was always asking. And He was going to keep asking till I gave in. David was not afraid. I believe in God's work. I've used my resources to get it started. I've given up my own personal possessions to get it started. And I'm not embarrassed or afraid to ask you to get involved either because you're God's people. You have as much to benefit from this as I do, it's our God. David wasn't afraid to promote it to the people because he believed in it. It was right. You know, again, our society today distorts all of this. How many of you have ever talked to people or maybe you've even said, I have, and you kind of get skeptical about all these TV evangelists that are always asking for money? Send me a seed gift of a thousand dollars. I'll send you a holy brick that'll take care of all your problems. And then when postage costs got too expensive, it went from the holy brick to the holy handkerchief because it was cheaper to mail. I mean, come on. That's not what I'm talking about. And by the way, this has got nothing to do with your commitment to me or anybody else. This is our commitment to God. But it's based upon what God tells me to do and what God tells you to do, not what somebody else tells you to do or asks you to do. That's why it's so important that we walk with God, that we allow God to direct our steps. But at the end of the day, we love Him so much and we're so passionate about what He's involved in, we're not afraid to promote what we're doing and ask others to get involved. Now, does that mean everybody's going to get involved the same way? No. The children of Israel didn't. But I want you to notice the last thing, and that's David's prayer. We're going to have to stop here. But look at First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse number 10. I believe this kind of sums up David's heart. Verse number 10 says, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly 
saying. By the way, why did he do that? All right, I want you to look back up at verse number 9. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. You know, the only kind of gift to God's work that really works or matters is when we do it willingly and wholeheartedly because we love God, not because somebody talked us into it. I will be the first one to defend you and be your advocate. If you say, so-and-so keeps begging for us to do all this stuff, I just don't think God wants me to do that. I will defend you. If God doesn't want you to do it, you better not do it. These people gave willingly and wholeheartedly. What did that mean? They wanted to do it because they believed with their whole heart it's what God wanted them to do. That's what you need to do. Okay? So David begins to pray. After all this happened, look at David's heart. David prays the Lord. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. And he begins to talk about all this. There are five things about David's prayer I want you to see. Number one, he acknowledged that God was everything. God is everything in his life. In verses 11 and 12, that's what he said. Look at verse 12. Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. In your hands are power, or strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. God, you're everything. We're nothing. We're really nothing. We're doing what we can, Lord. We're giving our resources and we're giving, trying our best wholeheartedly to do what we think you want us to do. But at the end of the day, Lord, we really don't matter. You're everything. Then number two, look at verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Number two, David acknowledged he was unworthy. Now, look at what David was able to do. Now, we don't have time to go back and read through all the stuff David said through his resources and his personal giving he was able to give. Let me just suffice it to say it was a whole lot. He was a very powerful and a very, very, very rich man. As a matter of fact, he gave more and was able to encumber more stuff through his resources than probably all of us would be able to do together with all the influences we've ever known in our life. Yet, and by the way, he would have had every right to stand up and say, now wait a minute, look what I've done. Is it not right for me to ask you to get involved too? I mean, look what I've done. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people today that do that, don't they? David didn't. Look what he said again. Look at this, verse 14. Who am I? And who are these people that you have enabled us to be able to do this? David acknowledged, God, I'm, I'm unworthy. You're everything. I'm nothing. Number three, his heart was devoted. Look at verse 16. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we've provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand 
And it all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and you're pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. David said, Lord, my heart is honestly devoted to you. Nobody made me do this. I did it because I wanted to and because I love you. And then number four, he rejoices that other people got involved. Verse 17. David says, I know my heart that you test the heart. You're pleased with integrity. All these things I've given willingly and with honest intent. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. And keep their hearts loyal to you. Have you ever been part of a revival meeting? An old-fashioned revival meeting where people just really got dedicated to the Lord and excited about the Lord. And you just, you just pray that somehow, God, please don't ever let this stop. I may have told you this before, but years ago I was preaching at a camp in East Tennessee. And I was the key speaker for that night. All afternoon I prayed and struggled with what to talk about. And all I had was these few little verses in Proverbs chapter 4. And by the way, this was a camp we had between five and 600 um, teenagers, a lot of them public school teenagers. They had been there since Sunday night. They had had preaching all week from other preachers. Nothing had happened. I mean, nobody was responding. They'd give invitations. Nobody was moving. A lot of them were kind of hardened in their life, came from rough backgrounds. And God gave me this message of two or three little verses in Proverbs that didn't even make sense. That these are the kids I'm going to give it to. I mean, they're not even interested in this. We got to the service that night. I'm sitting on the front row waiting to stand up and be the keynote speaker with a little piece of paper about this big and three little verses and four little points that didn't even make sense written on it and scared to death. Right before I was to preach, a gentleman who, by the way, is in heaven today, a gentleman sat at the electric organ Actually, it was one of those Yamaha piano things. And he began to sing a song called The Midnight Cry. Any of you know that song? Ever heard that song? It's about the rapture. And he began to sing about the joy when Jesus comes and takes us to heaven. He got to the second verse. And all of a sudden, two or three teenagers got out of their seat and walked down to the front of the tabernacle and got on her knees at the altar and one of them was crying and the other two were patting her on the back and they began to pray together pretty soon some more started coming then some more started. before he was done singing three or four verses there were over 200 kids at that altar weeping and crying and praying giving their heart to the lord i get goosebumps now just thinking about it i didn't do a thing I'm sitting there worried about what I'm going to talk about. They're still praying. He's already sang through the song like five times. And they didn't know what to do. So I got up and walked up on the platform and I said, let me talk to them for a minute. And I said, just play quietly. And I said, young people, what you're experiencing tonight is God. This is not a preacher. This is not some camp. This is the Spirit of God. Changing your heart. And we're going to stand here until he's done. I need all the counselors to come. 
and begin to help the kids. We stayed there for almost three hours. For an hour and a half, young people came forward getting saved, confessing sin and saying they wanted to rededicate their life to the Lord. When they were done, I was ready to say we can go. One of the young people said, Brother Bill, are you going to go ahead and preach for us tonight? I said, I don't need to. They said, yes, you do. We want to hear what you got to say. Now we want to hear it. You know what? Those four little things God gave me out of Proverbs 4 now made perfect sense. It was the perfect follow-up to what had just happened. You know why? God knew what He was doing. Who am I to think I can affect anybody's life? But yet, when God does it, you rejoice when people start to give their heart to the Lord. And you beg God, dear God, please don't ever let this stop. Keep this desire in their heart. Don't let them go back home and get cold again to where they don't like church and it's drudgery to have to live for God and read the Bible. Don't let that happen again. David said that in his prayer. And then the last thing, look at verse number 20. We're going to stop. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. And they bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the king. You know what David did at the end of all this? He said, you need to give God the glory because God did this. David was saying, I didn't do this. You didn't do this. Solomon didn't do this. God did this. David's passion for God's work. You know how you get involved in God's work? First of all, we want to. And second of all, just find out where God's working and jump in. Let me tell you, if you've never been involved, and many of you have, Bill's getting ready to go to Romania. I know why he's going. Because it went last year. And I know what it did in his heart. He wants to go back. I know several of you, David, several of you have been on missions trips. And you keep going. Because when you get involved and you see what God does, you want to stay involved in that. That's passion for God's work. And you know, every one of us has an opportunity wherever God has put us to affect people for Christ. And it all begins when they see our passion. We're just plain old people. We're no better than anybody else. Like David said, who are we? We're just plain old people that are glad God forgave us. And we're just glad He loves us even though we're like we are. And that's why we're doing a series called How to Have a Heart Like God with a Life Like Mine. Because God loves us anyway. Father, thank You for loving us and allowing us to be involved. I thank You that You've given us a ministry and a class here that as far as I know, every one of them has a passion for Your work. Lord, take our passion and use it wherever You put us to impact people for Christ. Help our passion to grow. I pray as David did, keep that desire in our heart. Never let it go away. And help us to love You more than we ever have. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Have a great week, everybody.